see a picture of God that we don't uh, usually uh, we don't usually remember. Um, Psalm 68, we see a picture of God that uh, is very um, Old Testament, but it's the same God that we serve uh, serve today. So let's read verses one through twelve before we get into the message. Psalm 68. Uh, verses 1 through 12, it says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad, and let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families, he bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when thou wentest before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped uh, at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace, and uh, she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Now the title of the message is, is Men of, of Militant Mercy. Now men, uh, it being Father's Day, I, I want to remind you that, that you are needed, that you are valued. We know how important you are in spite of hearing things to the contrary. Our culture hates you. It calls you toxic. Sitcoms make you out to be buffoons. Radical feminists want you neutered. Social media blames you for all the woes of the world, but that is not so. You've been told that you never do a task right when right has been reduced to a variation of the way they prefer it done, meaning it was wrong only because it wasn't done their way. You've been taught to fear your emotions. You've been taught to suppress them. So when they finally do erupt to the surface, you'll ir you, you're, you're, you're ill-prepared to manage them correctly and you hurt those closest to the eruption. You've been told over and over again that being you is bad and wrong. But is that what God says? He who created you male, male first, male and female, does he regret the decision to bisect the genders? We're going to see this morning that he does not. And while sin has ruined us as it has ruined women, and while we in our sin are capable of horrific atrocities, both against our family and against other nations, our masculinity is redeemable. 
It is more than just salvageable. It is restorable. We can be militant. We, as Lewis's lion, Aslan, we can be unsafe and we can be good. We must emanate compassion, humility, service, love. This is true, but this is, this is not the whole truth. And has the idea of masculinity in today's church become just a, just a gentle shadow of what God intends it to be? When we teach about masculinity, do qualities like strength and initiative and zeal and courage make our list? When we assess men for positions in church, when we look for leaders and godly mentors, do we commend men who make good shepherds, industrious, passionate, resilient men, able to both corral sheep and willing to combat the wolves? See, the world wants to make us safe. It doesn't care if we're good or not. But that kind of man says nothing uncomfortable, rallies no charge, shows little, if any, initiative. He's goaded to be convictionless and passionless, maybe even Christless, as long as he is subdued. See, a godly man achieves mature manhood through, through adding the fruit of the Spirit not subtracting the God-designed nature. See, kindness, self-control, compassion, they, they flavor his strength and his courage and his determination. See, these men, gentle and strong, they present kind of a paradox to the world because his hands build up the household, wrestle with his kids, uh, with his boys, sip tea with his daughters, yet grip the hilt of his sword against the agents of darkness that seek to destroy his family. He's a godly warrior who sleeps in his armor. He is fierce and meek and good. See, that description can be aided, strengthened, redeemed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We can be men, as it says in Hebrews, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the enemies of the strangers. See, lukewarm if I can use the word religion in the right context. Lukewarm religion makes for lukewarm masculinity. And lukewarm masculinity allows too many men to pass by the church doors in favor of Islam or Jordan Peterson or simply ESPN on the road to their destruction. See, we must not choose the convenience of niceness over the discomfort of godliness. See, nice says nothing of spine. 
Nice says nothing of edge. Nice says nothing of valor. So it can say very little of, 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 of righteousness or purpose. Nice requires no courage, no conviction, no willingness to make enemies with the wicked. Jesus warns us against this kind of palatability. He says in Luke 6:26, Woe to you! When all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But we must not exchange the good but not strong for the strong but not good. We must become better men through God's power, through our own self-sacrifice. We have to have that, 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 that godly jealousy, jealousy for the things of God that make good men dangerous to the world and the flesh and the devil. When you think of Jesus Christ himself, he grabbed whips, he turned over tables, he named names, He's the Lion of Judah. And he knelt down and played with kids. Spurgeon's last words in the pulpit portray a proper picture of this. He said, Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choices of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, tender, yes, lavish and superabundant in love, you'll always find it in him. This meek and fierce tough and tender, leader and servant, not safe, <laughs> but good. We need to be men like Jesus, militantly merciful men. See, man, we, we, we like this militant stuff. It, it, it resonates with us. It's, it's part of our mythology as men. That, that we march to the fight, we lead the way. It's part of, of, of the way we look at things as men. We're, we're more leaders than followers. And, 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 you know, we want to be men that have courage and determination. We want to be men that are mountains of responsibility. But some things have, have happened along the way to kind of call into question the image and to push us to refine this, this idea. Some things have come into our time, our history, that make us search for a new way to understand kind of who we are as men and what it means to be militant and what can we be militant about. I want to suggest first that, that, the, myth, that the, the military experience is not all that it was supposed to be. And that in our time, the old images of glory have, have faded. You see, within the last century, American men have marched by the thousands upon thousands. 
They marched away to remember the Maine, the, to charge up San Juan Hill, to, and, and that seemed glorious and, and dashing and, and heroic. They marched away to fight the war to end all wars, which had already taken a horrible toll in Europe, and their later rival, uh, I mean, they, they helped rescue the day, and it, it, it kept a little bit of the sheen on the glory. When the tide began to turn barely 20 years later, those, I was reading one history account, it said the ugly tentacles of fascism and Nazism reached out and began to devour territory and freedom and there were whole people groups under duress and we marched along and words like blitzkrieg became part of our vocabulary. The day which shall live in infamy was forever etched into our consciousness. And again, thousands of men, and by this time a few women, marched off. This time the glory was severely diminished. The horror of mechanized war left very little room for glory and valor. Uh, the legacy was death and disfigurement and social dislocation in huge proportions. And the myth of militancy that men had lived out was growing pretty thin by then. A generation or so before it seemed that there was some glamour in marching off to battle but now we kind of wondered and a few years later we sent thousands off to Korea. We didn't even call that a war. We called it a police action and we didn't find anything glamorous then. Some historians think it ended in a, in a stalemate. And then there was Vietnam. War fought on the 6 o'clock news in our living rooms. My dad, 85 years old, still will not discuss Vietnam. Some people call it America's moral quagmire or her disgrace. And the war for the hearts and souls of the Southeast Asian people we didn't understand. There were very few that marched home proud after that. They just weren't allowed to. The nation rejected its tradition of militant men and war, uh, that war left in its wake Agent Orange, political disruption, post-traumatic stress disorder. The militant man, it seemed, was all but gone. The band of brothers, it seems, was forced to disband. Something else that uh, happened to erode this old idea, old idea of the militant man. I mean, not just the fading of the glory of military life, uh, but also you factor in the changing social structure that gave women new and more public roles. The rise of feminism meant that for many men, there was an erosion of their leadership. They found the new order hard to take. Now, before I get in trouble, right, I want to say that the place of women had to change. We had to get a new understanding of the rights and roles of women. And I'm by no means suggesting that there was something wrong or something ill-conceived about voting rights for women, job opportunities for them, equal opportunities uh, for women in all sectors of life. That's only right and just. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that, so please don't conspire to have me tarred and feathered. I am saying that for many men, that movement made it harder for them to exert leadership. 
Some men felt diminished by that. Some felt devalued. It, it, it's too bad that they did, but they did. And, and it, it goes a lot deeper than just knowing whether or not she wants you to hold the door for her. The age of the militant man, it seems, was gone. The age of men who looked, who, who we could look to as leaders, as, 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 as take charge, marching for something, seemed to be gone. So is there anything today that men can be militant about? Is there anything today on this, this Father's Day which can fire our hearts and claim the loyalty of a man who is just trying to be a good follower of Christ? What will pick us up? What will cause us to march today? Well, this 68th Psalm, and I encourage you when you get home this afternoon to, to read the whole psalm. But it's one of the most militant sections of scripture that you'll read. The psalmist gives vent to, to a, the, 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 the warlike cry for God to be victorious. He writes of God scattering his enemies, of driving them away in smoke and fire. Uh, he pictures God on the march, marching through the wilderness with the earth quaking and the heavens pouring rain. He paints a vivid imagery of God in command of thousands of chariots routing the kings of opposing armies and when it's all done according to the psalmist the women who stayed home get to divide the spoil and the men march in great procession to the temple the psalm is full of a sense of the of the manliness of god of one whose arms get glory for himself and and who is awesome in strength and majesty it sounds very masculine very virile Sounds very much like what men are not allowed to be today. And dropped right in the middle of this psalm of shouts and victories, this psalm of, 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 of blood and battle, we find verses 5 and 6. Very easy to forget, very easy to overlook in the turmoil of the rest of the psalm. But, but look at what it says in verse 5 and 6. A father of the fatherless and judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. It's as though the psalmist is saying, I know what you think God is like. I know what you see him as, 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 you know, as lords of armies and, and, and the victor in battle. But there's another side. There's another aspect of God. And, and when we're singing this about this militant God, we must not forget that, yes, he is militant and he will, he, he will be victorious over his enemies, but he is militant in mercy also. He is a militantly merciful God. And I believe this calls on us Christian men, Christian women, children who surround them to be militant, but not the old style militant, but, but militant in mercy. And there are at least four ways here which, which men could, today can become militant in our mercy. The first one, this militant God, he is first the father of the orphans. 
which means that God takes responsibility for children. God takes responsibility for the fatherless, those without support. In the midst of God's militancy, of him conquering his enemies, he sees the plight of children and he steps in where he is needed. If men are to be men today, and to exercise their proper leadership role, then they, we, are going to have to get involved in the lives of children. Too long we've left the raising of children only to the women and somehow thinking that our role was to procreate and then pay the bills. But no, the, the, the day has come when we have to be militant in mercy towards children, for children. We want to crush the false teaching that spiritual work is just that of women, that children's ministries are just that of women. Children need militantly merciful men to teach them how to follow Christ. Years ago, educators were studying the needs of various school systems they had found in studying the children that up to about third grade, all the kids were bright and ambitious, they were eager to learn, but, but that somewhere after that, about fourth grade or so, the boys particularly, they became apathetic, they became hostile, they became antagonistic. For whatever the reasons, those educators found that if they put those boys especially with a male teacher, that things changed. You give them men and they brightened, they worked, they felt, they felt proud of themselves, they, they had role models. The women teachers were ignored by the boys of that age, but men got the attention. The men became the role models for the children. I think the lesson's plain. Men of militant mercy, we need to get involved in the lives of the kids. I'd like to see a married couple jump into the junior church rotation with the men, man taking, taking the teaching lead. I mean, we'll, we'll train you to do that. I wouldn't mind seeing some men, maybe with their wives, work in the nursery. I mean, come on, we can rebuild engines, right? We can stick our head inside of deer and moose to clean them. Surely we can change a diaper, right? Say, well, you know, Kids just ain't my thing. But they need to be. They're supposed to be. See, speaking in front of people isn't my thing either. But I'm doing just fine. <laughs> you can do what you need to do if you'll submit to the idea first of allowing the Lord to use you to do it. Northland needs... Some men of militant mercy who will serve the God who is the father of the orphans. Also, this militant God, this, this victorious God, he is a protector of widows. Now, that means a whole lot more than saying that God takes care of little old ladies in their declining years. If you know something about the social and economic system of ancient Israel, you know that the widow was, of all people, one of the most pitied 
because she had no means of supporting herself. With no jobs available and the labor of her husband gone because the husband was gone, she was the most vulnerable person around. And when this psalmist says that God, this, this, this militant God, is protector of the widows, he's saying that God looks out for those whose circumstances have made it impossible for them to be self-sufficient. You see, our world, our society, our culture sets up some people to fail. There's just some folks who are never going to make it on their own, given the circumstances that they're dealt. And, and if you were born in poverty, if you were you know, cradled in ignorance, if you were raised in instability and you were put out on the streets with no skills but your own wits, and the only success model you had was a drug dealer on the corner, then you're set up to fail. You've been programmed for disaster. You really don't have much of a chance of a decent life. Except that, and, and I can hear some of the wheels turning, that sounds, like, that sounds like my childhood, right? It sounds like the way I grew up, and I turned out okay. I got a hold of myself, and, and, and with the Lord's help, I did all right. And Well, yes, you did, and, and great, we applaud you for that. But I have to ask, who, who helped you there? Who, who gave you a hand? Who, who offered you an arm of protection? You really didn't do it all on your own. You did it because somebody protected you, maybe even against your will, from the negative influences that would have destroyed you. Somebody saw potential in you and reached out. They found you. They put you under their wing. Somebody, somebody in your life was your militant man of mercy. And our militant God, the protector of widows, the help of those who are helpless, he calls on us, men of Christ, to be militant men of mercy who will take a chance on someone who is headed the wrong way to, 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 to fight for them, to save their life, to, to redirect their heart and soul when everything is set up against them to fail. Also, this, this God, this militant God, this God whose strength and power is, is, is painted so vividly in Psalm 68. He's not only a father to the orphans. He not only is a protector of the widows, but he gives the desolate a home to live in. See, God's compassion and care for people is so comprehensive that he even sees those who have not gotten ahead and, and he does something practical for them. He gives the desolate a home to live in. He, he, he spiritually secures them. See, it's not uncommon to, to make comments about the relative scarcity of men in churches. There's been a Lord, I'm saying the word feminization of American Christianity. And it has, in many respects, left churches impotent. Now, even though at one level the ministry, uh, the churches have been dominated by men, down at the practical level, down where things happen, women have dominated. And if you ask, I suspect the answer is not very hard to come by. This hands-on church work has excluded men. Men moved or were moved away from the children and the young people. Churches become hands-off where men are concerned, and men are no longer building spiritual refuges for young people. 
And the church needs men that will be militantly merciful, who will humble themselves, stop fearing their emotions, become open and vulnerable, and kneel down and teach children. There's one more thing, one more ingredient in the recipe for, for men of, of militant mercy. The psalmist speaks of our God not only being the father of the orphans, not only the protector of the widows, not only as the one who gives the desolate a home, but the psalmist says he bringeth out those which are bound in chains. You see, God leads out the prisoner. But he doesn't just lead them out and turn them loose. He leads them to prosperity. Now, in the ancient world, it was, as you can only imagine, it was a horror being a prisoner of war. And I guess it still is, but at least today we're supposed to have the Geneva Convention, right? And supposed to have the forces of international law, which are supposed to ease the plight of prisoners of war. But it wasn't like that in the ancient world. Prisoners could be paraded before the crowd as, as, as they were drugged back to the victor's city. They could be enslaved. They could be taken into exile. Their families and their property could be confiscated and sold. And when the conqueror had his sport with them, then their lives were forfeit. It was really kind of the end of the road to become a prisoner of war. But the psalmist here, he, he, he hints that, that God's way with the prisoner might be different. That God might be more interested in leading the prisoner out than in keeping them in. That God might be more invested in giving the prisoner a new start than in keeping him bound. See, our God is a God of mercy. But he's aggressive in his mercy. He is militant in his mercy. His greatest victories come when the captives are not only set free, but they're set free and they're empowered for his glory. See, today we are needing men of militant mercy who will see the prisoners bound in chains and set them free. There is a prison into which everyone is born that it is more terrible, more vicious than Attica, more impenetrable than Alcatraz. It's the prison of sin. The commentators call it the dungeon of despair, spiritual solitary, the soul's deep hole. I know I don't convince you that the root of our troubles is spiritual. You'd agree that at the heart and core of the moral crisis we live in is a spiritual crisis first. There is a prison into which all too many are confined. It doesn't matter if they're in a jail cell or walking the streets. They are confined, and it is plain and simple. It is the sin that they are born in. And they are in horrible, helpless bondage. And I believe we're going to have to have men to lead the men out of prison. Because I believe no one can witness to another man like another man. No one can flesh out the gospel to a man like another man can. A survey I found states that 
if a child is the first one in the household to come to Christ, there's a 3.5% probability, not a guarantee, but a probability that the rest of the household will follow. Now that survey goes on to say that if the mother is the first to come to Christ, it raises from 3.5 to 17% probability, not a guarantee, but a probability that everyone else in the household will follow. But what the survey showed that when the father is the first to come to Christ, the probability rises to 93% that the rest of the family will follow Christ. Not a guarantee, but a probability. From 3.5 to 17 to 93. No one reaches men like men. Jesus wants you to be fishers of men. Because men, you catch men. Like nobody else can. You disciple men like nobody else can. Godly men result in more godly men. Now, time doesn't permit us to, to expand on this, but I have to say that we will not have the impact we want. We know that we should. Until men stand on their own two feet and get over their timidity and, 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 and take the gospel into the workplace, the neighborhood, the boat dock, wherever it is that men gather. We will not get anywhere until men of militant mercy become evangelistic men. And we, men of God, have to do something more now. We have to become men of militant mercy. I want you to remain seated. We're going to close not with a hymn this morning, but with a video. And the video starts if someone could hit the lights for me in just a moment. As soon as, as soon as the video is over, uh, Phil, if you could uh, pray and dismiss us. As soon as the video is over, if you, if everyone would stand, Phil's going to dismiss us in prayer, and that will be our our closing. And of course, don't move because we do have the gifts for the men that we would like to pass out. So. But I tell you that as a father, you are accountable to God for the position of influence he has given you. You can't fall asleep at the wheel, only to wake up one day and realize that your job or your hobbies have no eternal value, but the souls of your children do. Some men will hear this and agree with it, but have no resolve to live it out. Instead, they will live for themselves and waste the opportunity to leave a godly legacy for the next generation. But there are some men 
who regardless of the mistakes we've made in the past, regardless of what our fathers did not do for us, will give the strength of our arms and the rest of our days to loving God with all that we are and to teach our children to do the same. And whenever possible, to love and mentor others who have no father in their lives, but who desperately need help and direction. And we are inviting any man whose heart is willing and courageous to join us in this resolution. In my home, the decision has already been made. You don't have to ask who will guide my family, because by God's grace, I will. You don't have to ask who will teach my son to follow Christ, because I will. Who will accept the responsibility of providing and protecting my family? I will. Who will ask God to break the chain of destructive patterns in my family's history? I will. Who will pray for and bless my children to boldly pursue whatever God calls them to do? I am their father. I will. I accept this responsibility and it is my privilege to embrace it. I want the favor of God and his blessing on my home. Any good man does. So where are you men of courage? Where are you fathers who fear the Lord? It's time to rise up and answer the call that God has given to you. And to say, I will. I will. I will.